Welcome back to the Business of Primary Care podcast. This season, we'll be discussing the ins and outs of value-based care. Our community is full of healthcare's best. From physicians to consultants to CMOs, you will hear from experts on topics ranging from provider compensation to how to reduce medical expenses. Before we dive into today's show, let me introduce you to our hosts and experts on the episode today. We welcome back our host, Katila Farley. Katila is an experienced healthcare executive and is certified in value-based care. As a registered nurse, her professional experience includes 18 plus years in healthcare management. On this season, we welcome a new host, value-based care expert and author, Dr. John Hart. As an experienced medical executive with a demonstrated history of successful work in the hospital, healthcare, and payer industries, he offers the perfect expertise to guide our conversation. And we also welcome four experts on the show today healthcare consultants of the Marblehead Group, Ren Keber and Lisa Soraka, Craig Worland, Chief Operating Officer at Southeast Primary Care Partners, and Rick Merle, co-founder of Arrow Health. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. Well, here we are in part two of our groundwork intro to value-based care episode for the Business of Primary Care podcast. There's been so much great wisdom imparted by our guests interviewed and uh, that we need to stretch this out across two podcasts. And uh, spoiler alert, this won't be the first time that happens this season. Um, in part one of the Groundwork episode, we reviewed terms and acronyms. We discussed a little bit of uh, behind the why in pursuing uh, value-based care. And we talked about the need to move the primary care physician back into the central, even leadership role in guiding patients on their healthcare journeys. In this episode, we'll get more into some tactical and practical starting points for moving to value creation, including risk stratification and my favorite, annual wellness visits. Uh, We'll also look at when you might need to partner to help with some of the lift that's associated with value-based care and some of the challenges in both education and change management. I'm excited about this, Dr. Hart, even though uh, it's going into two episodes. uh, It's such incredible content and uh, we're just filled with some subject matter experts just giving us real ways to perform it. So let's get started today. Uh, We're going to continue listening to Craig from Southeastern Primary Care Partners, and we'll be discussing more about your favorite annual wellness visits. The fact that you have worked every aspect of a clinic from the front desk and beyond, and then uh, understanding the financials all the way to, to the different levels that you've worked with, having so many providers you're working with. So, so if we could, let's dig a little bit and then, because um, you gave me such great content here, I'd like to better understand. So you said you partner with 150 providers. So when you guys are talking to new providers who are looking at this concept and you decide to partner with them, what type of processes do you put in? Because you said you love processes, people processes. What is your first step? Like if you're going into a practice who's maybe considering value-based care for the first time, What's the first thing um, that you recommend them them do? And I imagine you're going to talk to me about the contracting at some point and compensation. But specifically, very first step, what's your first step? And to me, this is such a simple concept, but it gets overlooked. When you're talking about a chronic population, which you often are dealing with value-based care, is how frequently are they coming into your office? Number one, and I think this is absolutely foundational with anybody trying to do value-based care, you cannot treat everybody the same way. You have to stratify out your population. You have to say, here's my 
super high risk. Here's my high risk. Here's my medium risk. And here's my low risk. And uh, you can make that 10 levels. You can make that three levels, whatever. We, we make it three levels, high, medium, low. And we say our high risk patients, we need to be touching them monthly, if, if not more often than that. And it's at our provider's discretion. If they know this patient's under control, they're classified as high risk, then they can, they can prolong that. Um, but our, our clinical guidance is you need to be bringing those patients in monthly. Maybe a virtual touch point, but but more appropriately, uh, an in-person, in-office visit. Medium risk, you need to be seeing them every 90 days. Low risk, you may be able to get away with a couple times a year. But it's just what we call our return office visits. And then operationally, how we're, we're doing that is we, we put in the EMR, we've indicated, here are our patients and their risk level. And then at checkout, uh, our, yes, we call them receptionists, we call them our patient service representatives or our PSRs. They are actually... Um, looking at that risk level and saying, hey, I see, you know, Dr. Smith wants you back in here next month. Can I go ahead and get an appointment scheduled for you? And it's booked before the patient leaves. And oftentimes multiple appointments are booked before the patient leaves. So we're not depending on call lists and having to go get these patients and get them to pick up their phone. We're getting those appointments booked before they leave the, the, um, the clinic. Over, I want to say, 80% of our appointments are booked within the clinic. That's such a proactive approach. It gets ahead of it. And it's very difficult to do, though, when, you, when you're starting with a practice that already has any type of schedule ahead, any advice for how to get ahead of it. Because it, it's, you can do it once they come in and start going forward, but any way to, to transition that approach when somebody hasn't been doing it that way. We also focus a lot on AWVs and, or just annual physicals, especially for our Medicare patients. And so um, when we look at when we look at those, we see how many of our patients don't have those, and that's a great starting point. And we do call those patients and say, "Hey, you know, you're due for your annual wellness visit. It's free to you in most cases. Um, we'd love to bring you in, take care of any needs that you have, go through that process, and then once they're there, oftentimes we're identifying other needs that they have or other diagnoses that they have, and then we're we're scheduling them for that appropriate follow up. If a patient's stable and doesn't need it, then you know they're they're fine." That's awesome. So that's the operational approach. What do you do from a contracting? And uh, then I want to talk about compensation, but tell me about how you approach the risk contracting part of it. Step one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think fundamentally, and, and this is, um, it's a mindset shift in that uh, so often the provider and the payer are just at odds with each other. And, um, and you know, healthcare is this constant tension between how much can I extract from the, the payer who makes their bottom line on how much they don't pay to me as the provider. And then I'm the provider and my bottom line comes from how much I can pull from the pair. So it just creates this natural tension. You have to, you have to almost throw that mindset out um, when you, when you go into a value-based contract and, and realize that you're, you as the provider, especially as a primary care provider, you're functioning much more like the payer, but you have so much control, which is what we love about it. And so you now are focused on how much can we avoid in terms of downstream unnecessary spend. And that's how we're going to make our money First, how much can we do to this patient in front of that's in front of us and bill this number of CPT codes that will then result in a, a, a higher net revenue per visit or, or whatever you call it that's out the window. And that's not what you're focused on. You're focused on if I can prevent that patient from going to the emergency room, cut it in half. We have patients that, that visit the emergency room 30 times a year. If we cut that in half, that's you know, tens of thousands of dollars coming back to us 
on the bottom line. And that's what the payers want too. So when, when you go into the contract, you have to go in saying, listen, we're talking about wanting the same things here. Now then to get really technical or not super technical because I'm not qualified, but there are certain levers you've got to pull. So you want to focus on the MLR, the medical loss ratio, or the some people call it their medical cost fund or their medical expense ratio, whatever they call it. Um, and that varies by payer. That's the percentage of the total premium dollar that uh, you're targeted in, in spending. So oftentimes it's somewhere in that 82, 83 to 90% range. And so they'll say, let's just call it 85%. If you spend less than 85%, then you get to keep a percentage of that. Or, or, or if we spend less than 85%, then you as the primary care provider get to keep a, a percentage of that. Focus, that's your, you have to focus on, on that percentage and, and you have to ask the question, okay, what historically have I been performing at? Don't take, you cannot take the, um, you know, off the shelf agreement that says we'll, we'll hit you at 85%. Because if you've been historically performing at 92%, then you know that really doesn't do you any good. You've got a seven percent delta before you even get into the money there. I love what you just said. It's so tactical. Don't take the off-the-shelf agreement. Find out your historicals. We are always going to have a large kind of commercial fee-for-service component as well as a value-based component. I think there's a lot of really, and I already mentioned one. I mean, there's a ton of great groups like Oak Street, like ChinMed, like Aora, who have historically been predominantly focused just on Medicare or just on Medicare Advantage or the dual eligible patients. And I think they've built a really good system of care around that patient population in a way that, that as we've seen, just the way the markets have responded to those groups, phenomenal you know, business case as well as just case for the, for the patients. My concern just with those models is it's scalable, and that's been proved, but is it scalable to the point where it will meet all of the t- demand for primary care in the nation? And I would say no. You cannot have a panel of 300 patients um, per provider, and, and you know, just mathematically, that does not work with the number of primary care providers we have, the number of people who need primary care services to be able to, to serve everybody. So we as a company feel very strongly that we need to serve in the entire patient population, all payer classes. And that's one of the reasons that we've been successful in um, having other doctors join our group um, is they want to continue to see that entire patient population. We're not going to tell them they can't do that. So, so the lead in there to your question is, well, we'll always have this component where we are paid from a fee-for-service standpoint for, for a meaningful percentage of our population. Now, we take risk on that population as well. Kind of speaking to that independent provider who's trying to make that switch, who doesn't necessarily have the benefit of, of a large, well-funded um, organization behind them. Um, if they're independent and you know they are trying to understand how do I make this transition, um, I would strongly advise groups to look at the fee-for-service programs um, that CMS especially has implemented. Uh, that can really tie to the value base. So I think of things like chronic care management. There's a lot of groups that do chronic care management, and it's 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 you know, I'll just call it what it is. It's effectively another fee for service revenue generator. They do the bare minimum. They bill it out. It's, I'm sure it's all compliant, but they they get that sixty dollars a month, and and it's a great you know it's a great revenue source for them. But if you really dive into that, and you and you use that revenue to start to employ the support system, because that transition to value base requires a different level of support. It requires a different level of investment and um, kind of operational expenses. 
um, and you use that CCM program or remote patient monitoring program, or when going back to the contracting, the one thing I didn't mention on contracting is, you know, really focus on your care management fees, your PMPM care management fees. That's your working capital to make the investments that you need to make to be successful to generate shared savings. PMPM care management fees, if that's what you're banking on as your key revenue driver or your key success to transition to value-based care in terms of, you know, you just take that revenue and you pocket it and you say, that's it. You've completely missed the boat because you're, you're missing 60 cents on the dollar for every care management fee that's paid in terms of shared savings that you could generate downstream. So for that independent provider, contract in such a way that you get some care management fees, make the investments in the people and the technology and the infrastructure you need to be successful in shared savings, leverage CCM, leverage RPM, trying to think what else, you know, we focus on a lot. Um, you know, the ROVs are, are one of those things that have a lot of synergy between fee-for-service, the return office visits between fee-for-service and uh, your value-based reimbursement because you're getting paid, you're billing a 99214 every time a patient comes in the door, there's a decent revenue coming in from that. But you're also, you know, through that, you're also developing that habit with your patient where they're going to come see you instead of going into the emergency room. They're going to come see you instead of going to their specialist who may recommend a procedure when it's not necessary. And so it, it, there's a lot of synergy that you can use in a fee-for-service component or a fee-for-service reimbursement model um, that can help you kind of start to cross that chasm or feet in two canoes, feet, you know, you got a foot on each side of the cliff, whatever you want to call it, but to cross that from, from fee-for-service to more of a value-based revenue stream. So Craig just gave us some really incredible advice, some tactical areas to focus on. He talked about it as a network. He talked about it from a small practice perspective. Um, you think about annual wellness visits, why they're important. i Personally, I think uh, the focus on annual wellness visits, it, it gives you the opportunity to put a little proactive initiative behind how you're going to start approaching value-based care. And a lot of the uh, pay-for-performance initiatives start around that. They incentivize you to get a certain percentage of those annual wellness visits completed in the first half of the year. I totally agree with you, Katila, because I, I think you know it's been called the Swiss Army knife of value-based care, but it's also annual wellness visits are uh, an intersection point between fee-for-service and value-based care. You increase revenue when you do annual wellness visits. You increase your RVUs, your production, quote-unquote, gets better. And so as you're transitioning from a fee-for-service comp model for your docs to uh, value-based care, it makes a lot of sense to start with incentivizing annual wellness visits. It's kind of like butter in cooking. It's great on toast, but it's also an essential ingredient in some really complex sauces that you make. And so annual wellness visit gets you started. It butters your toast at the start. So it, it increases your revenue. Then it leads you down the path of the P for P and P for Q and some activities-based things. But then uh, as you get more mature in value-based care and documenting burden of illness, finding people who uh, have chronic uh, medical issues that might need extra support, doing a uh, med reconciliation to make sure everything's going on uh, medication-wise as it should be, as well as doing the things that you can to optimize their diabetes and hypertension and their statin use and, and their um, high blood pressure and everything like that. All of those things then feed into your ability to 
change your revenue drivers in value-based care, that being attribution, because you've just now seen a patient on an annual wellness visit, which actually takes priority over a regular 99214 office visit in most attribution models. But then, and you've also checked your burden of illness. So you've, you've, you've flipped your revenue levers, but then you've also flipped your cost of your medical cost levers uh, with identifying patients at risk, with making sure that you know, people aren't falling through the cracks on taking the wrong medicines, all those types of things. I love annual wellness visits as a place to start. And I think so many practices start there and that's the first place that the provider's incentivized, but the lack of follow through behind the process, I think that's where they really get into trouble. I was talking to a clinician just yesterday, who was just overwhelmed. It's uh, We're nearing the end of the year. Uh, we're hitting cold and flu season, and they have a ton of annual wellness visits to get completed. And to, to your point, which one takes precedence? Well, annual wellness visits are great. They're proactive. They, they have a proactive approach. But what you don't want to do is have a schedule so full that you're not seeing your patients when they need to be seen. So, you know, taking initiatives behind putting putting different processes in place, whether that's remote patient monitoring or virtual care and on. And I'm excited because we're going to really dig into those tactical approaches later in episodes and give, give these clinics some advice on that. Cause I will, I will say that's usually when I'm talking with practices that are struggling, it's not so much that the providers don't immediately get on board with the annual wellness visit. It's that they haven't fixed the processes in their scheduling uh, and and truly the patient understanding of what that means to have that to really be successful in that. Yeah, because part of the mind shift that Craig talks about uh, involves process and workflow changes and not just adding on more work. Uh, and I think that's why a lot of people and we'll talk about this more later this episode, but a lot of people think they have this perception of an increased work that has to be done in value-based care. I think the problem is uh, in those mindset shifts, people don't embrace the fact that there are processes and workflows they need to do that are important to do. Uh, and there are things that that they can stop doing, that they don't have to keep doing those and they can de-implement certain workflows that they have. And then on the point too about you know how do you do how do you do your value based care work along with you know uh, taking care of sick patients and things like that I I think you know Craig kind of gets speaks to this too that it's not an all or nothing proposition there are many successful practices out there that live in both the fee for service and value based care world in fact I firmly believe that the the foundations they build for value-based care, you mentioned some of those, remote patient monitoring, uh, virtual access, telehealth, uh, which sort of fell flat in the fee-for-service world, but really have come to to the forefront in value-based care. But with that foundation, it actually makes them better at fee-for-service too. So Dr. Hart, let's shift a bit and talk not only about the clinic, but also vendors and partners that are needed. Yeah. So I think one of the key concepts behind value-based care is that nobody does it alone. It's a team sport. Value-based care is a team sport. And uh, there are uh, circumstances and situations that really call for uh, asking for help. And that's just beyond asking for uh, medical specialist help with, you know, an advanced 
heart failure patient or a pulmonologist helping an advanced COPD patient. There are other potential areas of need like data. How do you collect it? How do you aggregate it? How do you report it? There are there are things out there that can take your electronic health record, your EHR, EHR and, and turbocharge it into being able to do other things that make you more efficient, more effective in what you're trying to do uh, while the, not only while the patient is in the office, but then at those times when, you know, the 99.9% of their lives when they're not in the office. Um, it's uh, about engaging mental health and, and behavioral health um, professionals as partners some PCPs are fortunate enough to already have these relationships and actually have embedded mental health specialists in their office, but a lot don't. And most of us struggle with trying to get somebody into see a mental health provider. So how do you partner to uh, impact that? Because again, uh, and we will talk more about mental health uh, later, but we know that in patients with heart failure who also have depression, that they have a higher mortality they have a higher incidence of hospitalization and they spend about 30% more in medical costs than their counterpart with the same level of heart failure that doesn't have depression. So we've got that going on. There might be a need for somebody to help you in how you manage the care of patients, care managers. You might have people in your office that can do that. Your MA might be perfectly qualified to do that. Or uh, in a large organization, you may need to find a whole a segment of people to do that and to do social work. Uh, there's partnering with community-based organizations to address social risks. Uh, there's the whole concept of a preferred provider network. And again, because a PCP can't do it alone. Anyway, I, I felt like, you know, Katila, when, when you talked to Ren and Lisa, they had some good thoughts on partnering. Um, so I'd like for us to just listen to that. Who should we be collaborating with? So we've talked about uh, terms. We've talked about understanding ACOs, um, IPAs. We've talked a lot about contracts and um, how cost impacts. Um, So this is just a broad question and you can each kind of take it in a different direction if you want. But um, just as we start thinking through uh, best ways of collaborating and best ways to steer the ship there, um, just kind of curious what you guys think on that. Okay, great question. And, you know, this is business of primary care, right? So I'm going to start with a perspective that we're talking about primary care physicians trying to find the right partners for value. And so I'll, I'll go in that direction. And then, you know, Lisa, you can chime in or you can redirect me. But the most impactful partner that a primary care provider could make is with their close referral partners in the specialty side. And the reason that I'm giving that as my answer is that uh, if you are going down the road of a shared savings or shared loss at any kind of partial risk or full risk arrangement, the people who really control the total cost of care generally are not the primary care providers. They're the ones who are on the front lines and who see uh, patients for uh, evaluation, diagnosis, referral, and play a critically important role in understanding their patients um, and what their needs are uh, from a healthcare perspective. But ultimately, if there needs to be a surgical intervention, if 
anything that escalates with a comorbid patient to the point of, you know, acute care, whether that's emergency department or hospitalization, you know, that's where the dollars start to add up when you're in a some kind of shared risk environment. And so um, aligning with specialists to understand, well, when is referral to specialty services clinically appropriate? Can we all agree on referral standards? Can we all agree to evidence-based guidelines for certain disease states? Can we understand what the hospital landscape looks like in our market? Where do, where do specialists like to practice and why? And what is the cost complement associated with practicing at those sites of care? Those conversations are foundational to maturing to a place where you might be comfortable alongside your specialist uh, physician partners in uh, talking about you know, shared risk. There are some programs where, you know, you mentioned that you have some experience in Blue Cross pilots um, that are primary care focused, that are designed specifically as value-based payment programs uh, for primary care. And so that's generally the management of clinical quality measures where the primary care provider can actually impact the outcome. Um, so I mentioned before in some of the P4P examples, screenings, you know, measure closure or measure management. So in that case, then you need a vendor partner generally, um, you know, so you're less looking to your clinical peers and more looking for how you collect, analyze, and report those data. If you're working in a uh, an, toward an arrangement where there's a hospital partner involved, um, then that's probably an example of a more complex style of, of, of arrangement. And that probably lends itself to having some kind of contracting vehicle as part of the um, strategy. And so then your, you know, your partner might be hospital leadership at that point to help, you know, offset capital investment to get those kinds of programs going. So kind of depends on what the ultimate objective is really. But if you're thinking about just kind of a, you know, professional uh, fee side or uh, arrangement that focuses on, you know, say total cost of care for a population, probably your specialist peers would be where you'd want to start. So Ren just mentioned a contracting vehicle. And I remember vividly when I started this process, how tedious it was just to track down our current contracts. So, you know, business of primary care, we have uh, an audience from small, medium, large health systems who have their own contracting departments, but independent practices who don't. And so I think it's really important to understand that typically when you sign a contract, each year it's renewed and you, you may not actually get a physical copy of that. So I think one of the first steps from a tactical approach is to try to, to get all of your contracts in one place and to house them on a regular basis. Dr. Hart, it seems that this process launches independent in the way in which each clinic is organized. Have you come across this with your clients in the past? Absolutely. It's, it's very different. And, and you bring up a great point that, you know, there's, there's a difference in how a mom and pop shop uh, who keeps other contracts uh, in the file cabinet under C for contracts <laughs> um, to uh, a multi-hospital, multi-spectrum health system that has uh, maybe even three separate 
or four separate departments within the contracting department. And where's all that housed? And then so we, we just got done talking about partnering with people. Well, there's going to be car- possibly be contracts in with that too. So it's not just contracts with payers, which to your point, gets, they get lost. Nobody can find them. Those have to be aggregated for two reasons. One, so you know where you are uh, with your payers, but also so you know what are the incentives that you need to pay most attention to in those contracts. But there's contracts with other providers, with other vendors, with folks who are going to help you in your ability to do value-based care. I think mental health and behavioral health, I'm going to go circle back to that because I think that's extremely important. And frankly, it's one of those areas where a lot of practices and organizations end up needing to ask for help outside of themselves to help meet the needs. Uh, I talked about the the impact of, of depression on heart failure. It does the same thing with diabetes and COPD. Having those abilities to have conversation with people, uh, to discuss not only their mental health needs, but their social needs as well, um, can really help in value-based care outcomes. I've seen, you know, some of the things that uh, folks have done in an effort to address other social risks seem to work better when there's a person uh, that's interacting with uh, the patient because uh, it, it addresses a, a problem we didn't even think about sometimes, and that's isolation. It's so powerful too when you have somebody else. I, I laugh all the time because you know a lot of patients seeing their provider physically going into the office, that may be the only visit they have that month outside of just their normal daily activities. So I, I think that's really powerful to recognize isolation as a, as a power play, especially as you're talking about behavioral health and mental health. I did have a conversation with Craig and we spoke about the importance of behavioral health in the overall scheme of value-based care, as well as opportunities for reimbursements to support those initiatives. Let's listen to that clip. You know, high reimbursing codes and relatively high reimbursing codes for doing um, a PHQ-9, a GAD-7, these these standard kind of gold standard screenings to help, you know, at least start the conversation with patients. So we send all of our patients who have an appointment. um, We're piloting this in in about 25% of our clinics today, but soon all of our patients across all of our clinics before they come in will get a PHQ-9 and a GAD-7 at least for one of their visits for the year. We talk about value-based care, it's a continuum. And so what what I mean by value-based care is full risk, prospectively paid, capitated arrangements with the patients or with the payers that pay you a per member per month or a per member per year fixed amount for all of the patients that are attributed to you. What somebody else may mean by value-based care is they do, you know, they get so many dollars from the payer for the amount of mammograms they do or, or colonoscopies they do. And then somewhere in the middle are those who have joined an ACO or um, are trying to are trying to build an ACO and they're you know going to take low risk on the front end and that's going to escalate throughout the throughout the time. So there's definitely a continuum. I think a lot of people stop at that first part of the continuum where, hey, I've got increased revenue for TCM, I've got some increased revenue for the the good care gap closure that I'm doing and other things. And they take that and they go on a nice vacation with it, or they take that and they it, it becomes part of their their 
you know, net operating income for their, for their business, they don't take it and reinvest it and say, okay, I can go hire another care manager or another nurse or a social worker or a pharmacist or somebody who's going to really help solve this need that a lot of my patients have. Um, and, and it's tough to find that you, you oftentimes, you know, as a, especially as an independent practitioner, but, but even as larger groups, um, it's tough to find those groups that are willing to make those investments. But, uh, you know, I think it's, it's absolutely necessary if you're going to be successful to move all the way down that continuum to where, which is frankly where the real money is. I mean, just to put, to keep it in economical terms, the, the dollars you're getting at step one and two of that continuum are maybe half on a good day, what you could get in that full risk, um, arrangement if you're really good at managing the population. So let's shift gears for a second and uh, talk about some of the goals and challenges that uh, we heard from our, uh, the guests that you'd interviewed so far in terms of value-based care. It came up a couple of times in the interviews that I listened to. There was uh, a talk about an increased workload, and I, I alluded to this earlier in this episode, but I see this really more as a perceived increased workload. Uh, as we've said, I think too many practices and organizations will add to or augment current workflows to accomplish the important pieces of value-based care, which are usually also the important pieces of good care in general, but they fail to stop doing anything. They just pile it on. So instead of refocusing on the important and the right work, they just add more tasks to everybody's list, get everybody ticked off and burnt out. Um, and so that's, you know, so part of the necessary reframing is a de-implementation of processes and workflows that don't create value. It's funny, the AMA, the American Medical Association, they have a, a little article, a uh, helpful article on improving throughput in your office. And they, they uh, give it the acronym GROSS, G-R-O-S-S, get rid of stupid stuff. And I don't think we do that enough uh, in this transition. I love that checklist, by the way. It's very powerful. It's available on their website. I think it's one of the most, like you said, de-implementing. Uh, and speaking of challenges in the conversation, I also had um, talks with Ren and Lisa, and we discussed challenges their clients have faced. And I think that they have some insights worth diving into. I think the reason so many practices I wouldn't even say hesitate, but have been unable to make this step is they don't have the, the financial aspect to make that first step of taking on the increased workload to get to the increased reward. What would you recommend your, your practices do first? Like if they're in pay for performance, what should they be doing to handle that workload versus all the way down the advanced track? And you, you can just just give me some tactical approaches to that increased workload. I think that was really powerful. Essentially for the primary, there are two types of increased workload, maybe three. One is financial. It's going to take some money. If their EHRs, EMRs, whatever you want to call them, um, are not up to snuff to be able to handle uh, the tracking that you need in order to understand if you're performing well, um, then they're going to have to invest in hardware. And software. Um, this isn't always doable for some practices uh, to do that. So then you have to look for grant funding uh, to be able to do that or ask for pay. Hey. 
Continuing our conversation around groundwork, we also have to address new initiatives or ways to connect with patients outside the normal visit. We get into many tactical initiatives in later episodes, but I do want to introduce one of our guests, Rick with AeroHealth. He begins conversations around technology needs and interoperability. We really want to be able to enable healthcare organizations that are trying to support providers and their patients. And we have sort of committed our journey to really enabling technology to support those providers. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we face is, you know, you you pointed to the EHR company that several of us work for. Um, independent of their level of success, oftentimes, as you see care coordination evolve within an ACO or between multiple networks of provider organizations, you're still going to have a, uh, a variety of EHRs. And they all sort of have their own way of interacting with the outside world and integrating with outside vendors. Our whole view is provide the freedom of choice at the provider level of what healthcare technologies work best for them, um, including EHRs, and not let that be the limiting factor for third-party vendors uh, and partners to be able to, you know, um, deliver their their solutions. I love that. And just focusing on the intent of the business of primary care, we talked to a lot of folks that might consider themselves competitors. And I was talking to a group yesterday and I said, the whole goal of the business of primary care is to bring together a community of incredible subject matter experts and help you align with those that you have your best fit. And in the end, if we can all fix healthcare in America, then we're winning. So why not? uh, Why not do that? Because so much of medicine is all about relationships and there has to be trust and there has to be equal um, commitment to, to that same passion. So thinking through the process of working together for success in primary care in America, Dr. Hart, you're a provider who's practiced in this space. What holds the system back from true collaboration? Yeah, I think we've done it to ourselves in the years, over the years of fee-for-service medicine. I think the fee-for-service framework has not incentivized communication between care teams or sites of care. You know, PCPs talking with specialists, hospitals uh, communicating with community providers, whether they be physicians or, or providers of other services care management teams communicating with physicians. We haven't built a framework for that. And so this lack of foundational work uh, in building a seamless, dynamic, and meaningful conversation avenue is really what's held us back in healthcare. So let's continue that conversation I had with Bren and Lisa as they bring up some great investments that need to be made as you work towards value-based care, especially around people, process, and technology. Some of the newer models, like making uh, uh, care primary, and, and uh, some of the, um, I mean, some of the, the other uh, commercial plans are starting to also realize that there is an investment that needs to be made up front in people, process, and technology, and that um, the you know the, the providers across the country aren't always at the same level of readiness 
from, from a starting point and some need more support than others to bring them along. I think just to, if you're looking at this from the perspective of a provider organization, let's say it's a primary care physician group that needs to start on this journey because they either think it's the right thing to do or they're getting pressure from their payer partners to do to, to transform uh, payment and care delivery. They're going to need to either source those things themselves um, or find um, find other ways to pay for it, whether it's grants or going to your payer partners or participating or in CMS programs or anything else. Financial workforce within workforce, there's, there's two aspects to the workforce. There's staffing. There's massive burnout, not just among physicians, but also among staff, you know, staff. And a lot of practices are having to hire uh, people to do pretty basic um, inputs, et cetera, um, and tasks that have absolutely no healthcare knowledge. It, it is difficult when you have to enter into data, not difficult, it's not difficult for a person who's done it before, but you're entering the data into data systems they're dealing with both the shortage of staff, but also the knowledge of the staff. And so basically, a practice that has resources could take the time to sort of initially handhold, but then really train the staff adequately. But when you've got high turnover, no longevity, and constantly retraining, they just can't keep up with the data requirements. Education, you know, depending on what patient population is, um, you know, education for both the patients as well as the providers in the ACO network around what it takes to transform your care model to align with payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that big chunk that, we, that Lisa was talking about, which is technology and yeah. integrating the, you know, disparate data systems in order to actually give a, a comprehensive longitudinal view of what the patient population is doing. Um, both in aggregate and at the individual patient level, the whole concept of ACOs is to align the uh, payment and delivery systems together and and support that alignment with technology and other infrastructure resources. Um, you know, an ACO allows otherwise not non-integrated uh, physicians to work together around value. And there are so many smaller practices still around the country, um, lots of times you find it's the physician themselves or, you know, physicians within the group or the tech savvy um, people, but that's not doing what they should be doing. They should be providing care. They shouldn't be driving it. Right. They shouldn't be in Excel trying to model out what a downside risk exposure looks like. Right. So really what you're getting at there, and if you don't have the access to the resources that Ren was uh, talking about, and, you know, even in the ACO models or being part of larger networks, then really what's critical to you in the smaller practices is really how good is your um, practice manager and not even just your practice manager, but other folks there. Again, I'm getting back to staffing, but finding the right person, persons to uh, work with you are critical. And that gets down to actually your billing coding staff, because those people and or are using an outside service uh, for billing and coding. And if they're not in line, I mean, these are all factors that weigh into whether you really can uh, work effectively and value-based because you have to be much smarter 
in those different reimbursement models. And I don't mean smart as in you're a smarter person. I mean smart in terms of being educated and being able to understand what it is that you're um, really trying to accomplish in value-based. The comment that I will add is that the natural inclination when you're starting to evaluate a move away from fee-for-service is to focus on what you don't have, right? So mm. what it, staff, technology, uh, financial resources to, you know, to either put risk-based mm-hmm. capital in or whatever you need to do. Um, and, 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 and so that, you know, that kind of takes over evaluating what you do have, which is the people that are part of the practice today and the willingness to make the change. And so, you know, you're getting back to the deal breakers or the red flags to not proceed is if you, if you don't really understand what you do have today, um, it kind of doesn't, you shouldn't even be bothered worrying about right. where we're going to get our analytics platform from because you've got to have the people aligned right. first, and then you can worry about filling the gaps with either partnerships like an ACO or um, investments in people, process, and technology. So I think we've now heard from a couple guests that it's all about the culture, especially when you're looking at moving into value-based care. You've got to have the people willing to make that trek with you and not just the decision makers moving contracts around. I found it really interesting. A lot of Ren and Lisa's comments were kept kind of pointing back to their their team, right? <laughs> like it 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 comes to the team. And I, I remember saying, I don't know who said this, so I'm not claiming it. I, I just don't know who said it. But it was really powerful back when I was managing practices. And it's not what's on the walls. It's what's in the halls. And I remember putting our mission and our vision and having these um, recited at meetings. Uh, but you have to take it so much further, uh, it, specifically talking about how you move culture and how you get everybody aligned and how that drives the way patients are treated, right? You take great care of your people. They're going to tra- take great care of your patients. I mean, did you find that Dr. Hart? Like, yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think, you know, it, it's a very important concept when you, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, reworking processes and workflows and things like that. What I've heard, the, the way I've heard hallways uh, brought into the mix is when you're doing that, you, you have to say what works in the halls, how's this going to play out in the hallway? Um, and meaning, when the physician and the staff and, and providers are, are are having to to do something or work on something in their daily practice, going through the halls of the practice, how does it play out for them? And I think a lot of times we don't take that into consideration when we're putting stuff together. Uh, and so we do lose- Down to the provider steps. Yeah. I remember thinking about that. Like how many steps does it take that provider to even get to an exam room? Like taking it all into consideration. And you mentioned that earlier when you said so much is put, just more and more is put on. What are we really thinking through and what are we removing? Yeah. So, I mean, steps and clicks and and uh, papers and signatures. And, you know, if, if we just think about, oh, well, it's just one more click. Well, it's one more on top of a thousand that we've also got a thousand more things we're going to add to. So I think, yeah, no, it's, it's very important to figure out, you know, it, you know, I, and I love that it's, it's not what's on the walls, you know, cause like you said, we, we hang up uh, motivational things or hang up the, the values and mission statement. It's not what's on the walls. It's what's in the halls and not only what the, the people in the halls, but how their work plays out for them in the halls as well. 
And yeah, and I agree with you. I mean, we've heard so much good stuff uh, today from a number of experts in value-based care. We've had some terms defined. We've we've heard about some practical, tactical first steps. Um, we just heard uh, also too about the double-edged sword of technology and the po- importance of refocus. And we we're talking about that with what we're just mentioning with the hallways. And, you know, the training and education and process change. And so much of this is change management and, and dealing with that. But we've also heard about the why. Why should we even pursue value-based care? And that's kind of where I'd like to uh, for us to end up in this episode. Um, in a conversation that you had with Craig, while he was discussing the importance of addressing social risks, I think he gave a excellent summary statement as to the why we should pursue value creation through value-based care principles. And and frankly, I think he captured the essence of value-based care. We have a lot of people in, in, in rural communities who have transportation needs and there's not a bus line. There's not a, a you know, a, a, a city transportation system that you get in some of these urban markets. And so getting them to the clinic can be difficult for their appointments. Getting them to other treatment areas can be really difficult. So they oftentimes sit at home until they get to the point where they have to take an ambulance to, to wherever they're trying to go. But lack of food is an issue. The social determinants are an issue. There's not uh, oftentimes rural communities, you don't have the safety net that you do in urban communities um, for, for the, the population who's struggling with basic social needs. Um, again, I think that's why I'm such a big fan of value-based care is we're as the healthcare provider. Um, if we feel like our patients lack of access to healthy food, and, and this is a true story. So if we, you know, if you have a patient who, who we had a patient that, that did not have, was struggling to control their diabetes. And then we realized, well, they're not eating healthy. Well, why are they not eating healthy? Well, they don't have a refrigerator. And so, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense for us to go and invest, you know, 600 bucks in a refrigerator. To help that patient, you know, store healthy, fresh food, and potentially, you know, that would be a, a leading driver to them controlling their diabetes versus spending ten thousand bucks every time they go in the emergency room because their A one C is through the roof. What a beautiful thing to do, by the way. Yeah, there's no CPT code for that. So in a fee for service environment, you have no incentive to go do those things. Um, but in value based care, it's you're you're now economically incentivized to do it. And, and that's one of the really, you know, when, when the economical incentives align, which is the being a good human incentive, uh, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really good spot to be working in. So that's, and that's what I enjoy about the value-based care space. So just bringing us back to what Craig just mentioned, which I think highlights what we're going to be talking about this season on value-based care. So I just want to emphasize it. He stated, when the economical incentives align with just being a good human, that's what value-based care is all about. And I believe that's what we're going to be focusing on. Thank you for listening to the Business of Primary Care podcast. We are honored that you've chosen to be a part of this community. We'd like to answer any questions you have about value-based care. Dr. Hart and Katila Farley will be taking time to answer these questions on the podcast and on social media. So if you have questions for us, head over to thebusinessofprimarycare.com. There's also a link in the show notes for questions specifically. 
Also, if you haven't yet, please subscribe to our value-based care and our practice leaders newsletters at businessofprimarycare.com. And don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes wherever you like to listen.